who's already opened up all their gifts? Wow, okay, everybody with kids, right? <laughs> Got to do that. Well, you can turn, turn in your Bibles to... Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We've been doing a little series here for Christmas titled Love Came Down. And uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, love came down as a ransom and what that exactly means. And so as you turn over in your your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at eight or nine words here depending on what translation you have. But I heard a, a true story about a little girl she was only four years old, and um, her name was Jessica. And Jessica apparently had the perfect Christmas, the perfect Christmas. She got everything she wanted under the tree. All of her family was there, her extended family, and uh, they were all there to celebrate together. She got to eat her favorite food all day long, which included a lot of sugar, and at night when she was being tucked into bed by her mother and, and her father, she looked up with a big smile on her face, just full of satisfaction. And she said this, I sure hope Mary and Joseph have another baby next year. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, when you think about Christmas, that nearly the whole world, the entire world, celebrates the same baby year after year after year. The same baby. Why? Why would we celebrate the same baby year after year after year? It's simple, because he's one of a kind. There's no baby that's been ever like the baby, the Christ child. He's the only one who existed before he was born. He's the only one, the Bible says, who is God when he was born. He was God at his birth. He's the only one who lived a perfect life, a sinless life. The only one. He's the only one who was born with the express purpose that God gave him. He was the only one, the only one who said, when I die, three days later, I'm going to be raised victorious over sin and death. I will rise again, he said, and he did. The only one. He's the only one on whom God has declared that one day every knee, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Not some, every, every knee. And that's the reason we celebrate. Maybe because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. He's one of a kind, and we celebrate it every year all around the world. There's nothing that brings greater clarity to the birth of Christ, I believe, than the death of Christ. You say, wait a minute. <laughs> but that's true. 
If you want to understand the birth of Christ, you also have to understand the death of Christ. You really can't understand Christmas until you understand and until you celebrate what happened on that cross. Christmas is just another holiday. But he specifically commanded us. You know, in the Bible, it's interesting, you don't find anywhere in the Scriptures where Jesus tells us, remember my birth, celebrate my birth. He doesn't say that. Nowhere. But time and time again, we're told, even by Christ himself, remember my death. Why? Because it's his death. That's really the the heart and soul of Christianity. If Christ would not have died, he couldn't have been raised. If he couldn't have been raised, he's, you know, why are we here? It's the heart and soul of, Christi, of Christmas. And, and we see here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I'll just read this one verse for us. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve, he says, and to give his life a ransom for many. From his own tongue, Jesus tells us why we celebrate Christmas. From his own tongue, he gives us clarity for this day. He tells us why he came to earth. He tells us why he left heaven and came to this place. I don't know about you, but if I was in heaven, I would not want to come back here. This is the purpose for which I was born, he says. He says, to give my life a ransom for many. And that's interesting to me because Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. See that? I didn't come to be served, but to, 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 be, to be a servant. In other words, Jesus didn't come to earth to recruit us as his little elves, as his little helpers. Sometimes we think that. Jesus didn't come to recruit servants. This is a very humbling statement for us to hear, but do you realize that God does not need our help? God doesn't need our help. Do you realize that God is not glorified by the number of servants that he can somehow conjure up and get to help him out to carry out the plan? God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need your help. And Jesus didn't come to recruit us as helpers, to help him out, to get his will done. That's not why Jesus came. And the reason I know that is because the Bible says that our God is so vast, he's so full, he's so self-sufficient, he's so, you could say, overflowing with love and with joy and with power. This is the God we serve. He doesn't need our help. So he says, I did not come so that you could serve me. Jesus says, he says, I came down, I glorified myself by serving you. Think about that. God serves us. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. 
Now, could he force us to serve him? Definitely. He's God. He's all-powerful. He could. He could force us to help him. But Jesus didn't come to recruit a bunch of servants. He says, I came to serve you. The creator of all creation came into creation to serve us. Just let your mind dwell on that for a second. What a humbling thing. That's why when we became a Christian, you have to understand Jesus doesn't make you a Christian because he wants your help. He came to help you. He came to help you, not the other way around. That's why it's such a humbling thing to become a believer, to become a follower of Christ. Because the first thing you have to admit, guess what? I need help. (laughs) Say that. I need help. help. It's hard. It's hard to say that. I need help. I'm desperate, God, for your help. I have nothing to offer you in exchange for your help. But I'm trusting, Lord, that you're going to show me mercy. And I'm trusting, God, that, that you will be the, the servant of my salvation that you promised to be. Je- Jesus primarily came for one reason, to, to, to serve us. That's what he says. I mean, that should really give us a wake-up call that the, the, the creator of everything out there came to the creation here to serve us, to wait on us. Now, don't get the wrong impression. Jesus isn't some kind of divine waiter or divine bellhop that, hey, Jesus, over here, you know. No, we don't, we don't treat the Lord that way. That's not what he's speaking of here. So let's clarify this. How does he serve us? How does he serve us? Well, he, he tells us, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to serve you in a way that you need service most. I'm coming to give my life a ransom for you. Well, what exactly does that mean? Let's break down these eight and nine words here. Because Jesus says that his life, his death, he tells us what it's all about. And this is really the purpose we celebrate Christmas. So first of all, Jesus tells us, you have it there in your outline, that his death is voluntary. It's voluntary. Notice it says to give his life. He came to give his life. I, I think it's very important that we understand this was not a mandatory action by the Lord. It was voluntary. That should mean something to us. I think that's important because there are opponents of the cross, you could say, that will make the argument, and the argument kind of goes like this. You've probably heard it if you've shared the Lord with people at all, shared the gospel. They'll say something like this. You know what? If there is a God in heaven who would love his creation so much that he would send his only son to die in their place, What they say is that would not just be bad. That would be evil. And their argument goes like this. They say if there would be a God out there who would send his own son, his only son to die for us, 
I mean, when, when we, we preach on Good Friday, we talk, obviously, about the, the, what, the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the purpose of the crucifixion, the picture of the crucifixion. We, we, we share all that. And I remember an individual asking me, after a Good Friday service one time, they, they, they had a real problem understanding what we were communicating to them. And loosely quoted, he basically said, you know what, I can't understand what you just talked about. I can't understand a God uh, that in heaven who would send his own son to die for somebody else. Who would want to be connected with somebody like that? And he used the illustration like this. He said, you know, imagine if I had a son and we were in a room and someone threw in a hand grenade and I took my son and I threw him on the hand grenade to save everybody else in the room. You'd go, oh, what a horrible father that is. Right? That would be evil. (laughs) And that's how he understood this. A father shoving his son onto a live grenade in a room full of people in order to spare the lives of the others. He said, yeah, you're sure you're demonstrating love for those who are saved, but you're certainly not demonstrating love to the one that sacrificed. But that's not what the Bible describes the death of Christ as. That's not what we have in the Bible. That's their argument. It is not the father demanding and commanding and forcing the son out of heaven, get down there and die, Jesus. Go down there and die for the humanity of the world. It's not that at all. That's not how the Bible depicts this. Jesus says, my love for humanity is as equal for the father. He was God. Yes, he came to do the Father's will, but he also came to the world according to his own unrestrainable love for his people. Jesus said, I give my life. I give it. He's not forced. It's not something that's pushed upon him. It wasn't mandatory. It was completely voluntary. And we see that throughout the New Testament. In John 10, verse 11, for example, Jesus says, I am the good, what, shepherd? Who what? What's a good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it. He lays it down. He says, I lay it down only to take it up again. He lays it down on his own accord, his own choosing. Or in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, who gave himself, speaking of Christ, for our sins to deliver deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. But he gave himself. He wasn't made to do it. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God the Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. And in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul writes this, And walk in love as Christ, listen, loved us and gave himself up 
for us a fragrant offering in sacrifice to God. Do you remember what Jesus said in the upper room when he was, he was serving his disciples, by the way? He was serving them. They felt a little uncomfortable about that, but that's what he did. The very first Lord's Supper, the very first communion, we call it. What's he do? He gives the bread and he breaks it. And he hands it to each of them and he says, This is what? My body, which is given for you. Jesus Christ himself said, I am doing this on my own accord. Do you remember on the cross, when he was hanging on the cross, the last two things that Jesus said? The last two little phrases? The second to last one, he was hanging there in the hot air for hours. And the second last thing he said was what? I thirst. I thirst. Now earlier, they had come along and they'd offered him some, they call it sour wine. It's wine mixed with kind of a painkiller. And what did he do? He said, no, I don't want it. Why? Because Jesus wanted to experience every minute piece of penalty and pain and shame that was on him. He didn't want anything dulling his senses. He wanted to bear the wrath of God for the penalty of our sin fully. He wanted to bear it all. He didn't want to be numb. And right before he died, Jesus said, I thirst. And so he took a long drink. And you say, well, why? Why would he reject it earlier? And well, you think physically he's hanging on a cross. Have you ever been in a, a drought area and you haven't had a lot of water? What happens to your mouth? It dries out. Right? Sometimes when you get up to speak, you have a parched mouth, right? And what happens? You can't talk. You know, your tongue's actually stuck to the roof of your mouth. And I'm sure the Lord's tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth. But he had to say something physically so everyone would hear it. And he couldn't do it physically. Because he was fully human, fully God. And so he, he said, I thirst. Because he was high, dehydrated. His mouth was completely dry, but he wanted to say something loud enough so everyone could hear it. It was that important. And so he took a little drink to moisten his mouth in order to be able to say these words, his last words, before he died. It is finished. It is finished. Not I am finished, it is finished. What is that? It's the mission for which he came into the world, the purpose for which he died in the place of us. He finished it. Do you remember what John said right after in John 19.30? He says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And then, listen, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He did it. He gave up his spirit. No one took his life. No one took his spirit. No one stole the spirit, stripped him of it. No, he gave it up. Why? Because it was the appointed time. 
This is when the mission was to be completed. This is the purpose for which he was born. And finally, it was fulfilled. It was accomplished. And so, as he hung there, his last words were, It is finished. It's so important to understand this because the enemies of the cross have all kinds of ways to tell us lies, articulate lies, untruths. And we have to be able to think straight and understand that's not what Scripture says. What you're telling me is not true. God did not make Jesus come down from heaven and die on a cross. He did it on his own accord. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom voluntarily, lovingly, purposefully, sacrificially, sincerely. So his death was purely voluntary. Well, secondly, Jesus also tells us that his death is valuable. His death is valuable. He says to give his life as a ransom. I hope nobody ever here has had to pay a ransom. <laughs> Maybe you know somebody that did. Somebody gets kidnapped and you've got to pay a ransom. But, you know, we've, we've watched a lot of movies. We, we've watched enough movies to know what a ransom is, right? A ransom is a price paid in order to gain, what, someone else's freedom? That's what a ransom is? And the Bible tells us that every single person who is born is born in a state of enslavement. They're enslaved to sin. No one is born free, despite what people tell you. That's not what the Bible says. No one is born with the capacity even to free themselves. Can't do it. The Bible describes us as being captives to sin. Captives to sin. And we have to have someone come and rescue us and set us free. Or guess what? We will be enslaved forever. What that means is when we, are, when we say we are slaves of sin, what does that mean? It, it simply means that when we are born, we cannot not sin. We cannot not sin. I know that's bad English for those of you who are here, but it's good theology. It means we cannot not sin. We can't help ourselves. Those of you who have children, I don't think you sat your child down one day and said, okay, let's teach little Johnny and little Mary how to sin. You didn't have to teach them that. They did it completely fine on their own, right? <clears throat> we don't have to teach them. They know how to sin from the very beginning all by themselves. Now, some people say, well, you know, it's because of bad parents or dad or grandpa even, you know, uh, maybe the neighbor kids or the kids at school. That's where they get this. No, that, that may hurt them a little bit. But you know what? They got some of that, but they can do very well in the sin area all by themselves because they cannot not sin. Nobody can because they're enslaved to sin. All of us are. And we need to have someone who's free to free us from the slavery of sin. We had to have this, this ransom paid in order to be set free. That's what a ransom is. 
And Peter, if you just turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, he tells us the price. You say, well, what was the, what was the ransom? He tells us. He tells the incredible price that Christ paid in order to set us free. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed, there is the word, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. No, Jesus didn't have to pay money. Verse 19, it says, but with the what? The precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then in verse 20, it says, He was foreknown, who? Christ. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. When, when was, was Jesus chosen to be our ransom? The Bible says before, guess what? The first sin was ever even committed. <laughs> before the foundation of the world, he was chosen to pay our ransom. Before you even knee, knew that you needed a savior, he was already sent. Isn't that great? He was already provided. If you've ever read any of Max Lucado's books, he has a book called Cure for the Common Life, and he tells a story in his book about a time when he got a notice from his bank. His daughter had an account with his bank, checking account, and he got a notice of an overdraft notice on his daughter's account. And he said, you know, I've spent my time with my kids. I've always encouraged his daughters to do the right thing and, and to make sure they balance their checkbooks and all this stuff. But he said inevitably at times they would overspend. And, and here's what he wrote. After getting this notice of insufficient funds on his daughter's account, he said, what should I do? Let the bank absorb it? They won't. Should I send her an angry letter of admonition? That might help, but it's not going to satisfy the bank. I could phone her and tell her to make a deposit. And he says, I might as well tell fish to fly. <laughs> I know her liquidity is an absolute zero. And then he concludes, he says, to transfer the money from my account to hers, that seemed to be my best option. After all, I had the $25.37. I could replenish her account and pay the overdraft fee as well. Then he writes this, besides that, that's my job. Then he says, now don't get any ideas. If, if, if you're overdrawn, don't call me. <laughs> He says, because my daughter can do something that you can't do. She calls me daddy. And since she calls me daddy, I do what dads do. I covered my daughter's mistake. 
And he went on to write that he had called her and he did tell her that she was overdrawn. Sheepishly, she kind of said, well, sorry. Yet she offered no deposit because she was broke. She had no way to fix it on her own. She only had one option. And then small voice, she says, Dad, could, could, could you? And he says, at that point, I interrupted her sentence. And he says, honey, I already have. I met her need. Even before she knew she had one. That's what Peter is telling us here. That's what Jesus did before we even recognized we had a need. Before we even recognized that God's penalty was upon us for our sin. He had already made a way to provide all that we needed through his son. And so we come and we say, have mercy on me. And he says, you know what, my child? I've already provided for it. By the way, you can call me daddy. Amazing. The love Christ and the Father has for us. That's what Jesus is saying here. My my death is voluntary. My death is also valuable. Thirdly, he says my death is vicarious. This is kind of a big word. He says to give his life as a ransom. And then there's a very important word there, for. For many, that word for is very important. It, it, It means in place of or instead of. That's what vicarious means. It means in place of, or it means to represent another on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, he represented me, and he was my substitute. He was my representative. See, today, we have this thing in Christianity, they look at Jesus as an example. You hear it all the time, well, Jesus is my example. Jesus is not your example on the cross. Please understand that. He's your representative. He's your substitute. He didn't just die for you. He died, what? Instead of you. Big difference. All of that sin, all of that shame was born on the cross It was really my punishment to bear. It was your punishment to bear. We deserved it. But what did he do? He took our punishment. He took our place. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I'm giving, what? My life for yours. I'm going to die so that you don't have to. Now, obviously, he's talking about spiritual death. Because we will all die physically. When you look through the book of Hebrews, you see a people, the Hebrews, they want to go back to the old ways. They want to go back to 
Judaism. They want to go back to all the sacrifices. They wanted to go back to that sacrificial system that was set up in the Old Testament. But we have to understand, in the Old Testament, what was that sacrificial system doing? It was only pointing forward. It was pointing forward to the the sacrifice that Christ would make. It was pointing forward to what the Messiah was going to do. Just like all those goats and bulls and lambs that were sacrificed. They were sacrificed on our behalf. But this is the one, the Lamb of God is going to come and he's going to lay down his life once for all. And then he's going to take all of your stuff, all of the sin, and this isn't just an honest mistake like Max's daughter made, but it's all the ugly sin that exists in our lives. And he says, you know what? I bore it all. I bore it all. Theologians call that the substitutionary atonement. Somebody substituted for us. Atonement means to pay for, to reconcile, to make right, to satisfy. What did Jesus do? Jesus died an atoning death in order to pay for our sin and the penalty which it incurred. He died to reconcile us, to rejoin us to our Creator God, to make a way for us to be called children of God, to make a way for us to be called friends of God instead of enemies of God. He died in order to make us right once again in front of a holy, in front of a righteous and just God. That's what he's telling us here. Jesus didn't die for good people. Do you understand that? We talked about this, I think it was last week. He didn't die for good people. He died for who? He died for sinners. Now, some people don't like to look at themselves that way. But I want you to understand this very clearly and hear me on this. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, guess what? You cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Because that's the only people that Jesus saves are sinners. He saved sinners. He died for sinners. And as our very first step, we need to recognize, we need to admit, we need to be honest with ourselves, we need to be humble, and we need to say, you know what, Lord, yeah, I'm a sinner. And guess what? I am helpless to help myself. I can't do anything about it. Lord, be gracious to me. Be merciful to me. Save me. Please, save me. Isaiah 53 talks about this in verses 4 to 6. He says, surely he has, speaking of Christ, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, listen, for our transgressions. He had no transgression. Christ was perfect when he hung on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned aside everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, on the Messiah, on Jesus the iniquity of us all. What he's saying is, what should have been ours, 
was placed on him. In the New Testament, there's no more graphic picture of a vicarious death, the vicarious death of Jesus, than, you're not going to find it anywhere else, the character of Barabbas. Remember Barabbas? We talk about him as Easter time a lot of times. Barabbas was on death row. And guess what? Jesus was on death row. You remember the story. Now, there's a big difference between Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas was guilty, right? Jesus was what? Innocent. He was sinless. And yet he was still on death row. And you say, well, you know, what happened? Well, Pilate decided that he would let one of these two characters go free. He was kind of in a pinch. He didn't know what to do. He thought, well, if he puts Jesus to death, you know, his followers are going to rise up and riot. And, and so I'll, I'll let the people decide. And so he told the people, should I free Barabbas or should I free Jesus? And we know the story. They freed Barabbas. They freed Barabbas. Barabbas was set free. Barabbas, the guilty one, was set free. And Jesus, the one who is completely sinless and innocent, is chosen to die. You might say, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? (laughs) Guess what? You're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. We're all Barabbas. We are the ones who are guilty, my friends. We are the ones that need to be set free. And because of his sacrifice, the sacrifice of the innocent one, the sacrifice of Christ, who was condemned and chosen to die, we can be. Do you know that Barabbas was really the first one? The very first one who who maybe from a distance could point at the cross and point to Christ and say, you know what? He died for me. He died for me. I'm free because of what Christ did on my behalf. That's what Jesus is telling us here. This is the clarity that he offers to Christmas. If we don't celebrate Calvary, we can never celebrate Christmas. You'll never understand his birth until you understand his death because that's the whole purpose he came. Well, the last thing here this morning is Jesus says, he tells us that his death was not just voluntary and valuable and vicarious, but it was vast, vast. Look at what it says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for... What does it say? Many. Many. Now you might wonder, a lot of people read this and think, well, I thought Jesus died for everyone. Why does it say many? That seems kind of restrictive. Shouldn't it say he died for everybody? But Jesus, even in Matthew, says this again. So it's not something he just made a mistake here. In Matthew 26, verse 38, or 28, he says, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, some people look at this and they think, well, Jesus died for a limited amount of people. Well, when he says he dies for many, it's not many, but all. It's many, it's not all. What it means, he has died for all, which is many. His, his vicarious, substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, he gave his life to pay God in full, full payment for the price of sin, for all the people who would ever be saved throughout history. Christ's death propitiated or satisfied, you could say, God's wrath. And it fulfilled the demands of his justice for those whom he chose before the foundation of the world for the redeemed. The one sacrifice of the Son of Man paid the ransom for the many who believe. See, when we talk about the vastness of his death and what it will accomplish You have to understand, he's saying that all can come. There's too many places where Jesus says, whosoever will come, come. Whosoever will confess that Jesus is Lord can be saved. See, he's not talking about the limited number of people who will come Because he's saying over and over again, anybody can come. Come unto me, all ye who are weary. But here's the thing, not everybody will be saved. We understand that. But anybody who wants to be saved, guess what? Can be. They can be. We believe that the scriptures do teach the doctrine of limited atonement. That Jesus' payment on the cross, it didn't pay for everyone's sins. Because if it paid for everyone's sins, everyone would be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that Jesus died for many. The blood of Christ can potentially save all. But it will eventually save many. And the limitation of this is is not on the ability of Christ to save. That's where we go. It has the potential to save all. The limitation is what? On the willingness for people to turn, as we talked about last night, to repent, to surrender, to trust, to believe, to humble themselves and say, hey, guess what? I'm a sinner and I need help. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless without you, Lord. The blood of Christ can potentially save all, but it will eventually save many. To conclude, here's the more important question. Are you in the many? Are you one of the many? I mean, that's why we celebrate Christmas year after year after year. What are we doing? We're celebrating the many. We celebrate that we are in the many. Not because of anything we've done. Not because we're so great. Not because we're so smart or so perfect or so humble. That's not why, but because what? Because of what he has done 
for us in our place. We celebrate the purpose for which he came. I read a story of a man in Canada, Ontario, Canada. He was having a little issue in his life. A problem. Recurring problem in his life. And the issue was this, his garbage pickup was inconsistent. (laughs) It was irregular. They were always late. He always had garbage at the end of the week that wasn't being picked up regularly. And he got angry, he got ticked off, so he came up with an idea. And he began to do this every morning. He got a half-decent-sized cardboard box. And he'd take the box and he'd put it down on the kitchen floor and he'd throw... All of his garbage in there, all of his eggshells, all of his uh, baking grease, his coffee grinds, his leftover lettuce leaves, any other trash, whatever. He'd throw it in this box. And he'd put it all in the cardboard box, and then he'd seal up the box, and he'd actually wrap it up. He'd put a nice little ribbon around it with a big red bow on top. And he lived next to a, a major highway. And out of his kitchen window, he could kind of see where the cars would go by. And he'd go up there, he'd take that box out of his car, and he'd set it on the highway. <laughs> and he'd go home. We know what would happen, right? He'd watch from his kitchen window. Cars would stop. And the people would get out, and they'd look around, you know, make sure nobody... And they'd take the box, and they'd throw it in their car, and they'd drive off. they could, hey, I got a free gift! Of course, you know, I know, all they had was a gift-wrapped box of garbage. My friends, that's exactly what Satan offers you and I all day long, every day of the week. That's all he can offer us, is a gift-wrapped box of garbage But I want to tell you this morning, God offers a whole different kind of gift. Totally different kind of gift. And you know what? It's not wrapped up in a pretty box with wrapping paper and a bow. No, it's displayed on a bloody cross. And he says, anyone who will love him, anyone who will turn to him, anyone who will trust him, depend on him, God says, I will give and I will provide all that they need in my son. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. That's the greatest gift of all. My question is, are are you in the many? Are you in the many? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, that's my hope, my prayer. I pray that we would understand here today that If we're not part of the many, I ask that the Holy Spirit would awaken the mind of those individuals, would help them to see where they really are so that they can understand what they really need in life. Because we know what what they need is you. They need Christ. And not just for this life, by the way, but for the life to come. 
Jesus Christ, Christmas clarity, he came to give his life a ransom for you. Pray that this message on this Christmas morning, even as we drive home, will reverberate in our hearts and our minds. That what we've been saying and what we continue to say is that Christmas is not just this holiday that's all about Jesus. No, everything is all about Jesus. That should be our delight. That should be our joy. The mere fact that we don't bear the weight and the responsibility of the result that you have not called us to be your helpers, but you have called us to obey and to heed your commands and to hear you and to respond to you. But you don't need our help. Lord, we thank you that you have called us friends. We thank you that you have made us children of the living God, all by the work of your own hand and by the giving of your own life. Lord, I pray here today for those folks who may not have stepped across that line of faith yet and trusted in Christ. I pray today somehow the light would go on. That they would understand maybe, maybe for the very first time they would understand their need and that your delight in saving them. Even as we sing this last song, Lord, I pray that we would celebrate it. Those of us who know you and we would sing it with a wholeheartedness as we worship you. Not because you need it, but because it gives you joy when we glorify you. And to those who need you here today, I ask that you would draw them to yourself as only you can. We ask this in the glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.